Oh, that was awesome, guys. Thank you all so much. Awesome. All right. Well, um, well, yeah, man, gosh, I feel like we need to, I feel like I should sing this. Um, it's, a, it's a hard shift right here. Now we're going to do a catechism, everybody. Got everybody fired up. So uh, what we're talking about is just like, just make sure you lead in well to the catechism, and then we'll go from there. No, but uh, uh, as we've been doing, we'll continue our catechism, um, even here on Easter Sunday during the celebration, but we'll read, and then I'll uh, pray for us. Uh, so the question 14, uh, did God create us unable to keep his law? And we'll say together, no, but because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature and unable to keep God's law. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we do see and recognize that our first parents were unable to keep your law. They were unfaithful. Uh, and we are like our parents in that. We are unable to keep your law, to keep your ways. Uh, and we ask for your forgiveness. And we rejoice that you did not leave us to ourselves, but you sent your son uh, to be uh, a second Adam, the last Adam. And as we are found in Adam to be guilty in our sin without hope, uh, we can be found in the last Adam, in Christ, to receive the forgiveness of our sins. And we could be left to wonder if it all worked. Is it all true? Did what Jesus say and what the Bible teaches, how do, how do we know it's true? How can we trust it? Uh, and, and God, you gave an exclamation point in the resurrection of your son. And so today, as we do every day, we celebrate the, the confirmation of our faith, the resurrection of the son of God. We often talk of the cross as we should, of what it cost. Uh, to make us right with you, but it wasn't just the judgment and wrath that was, um, that was transferred from us to Christ. It was his righteousness and his reward that is transferred to us, and we know this through the resurrection, and we anxiously await that day. And so, Father, I pray that today as we consider uh, ourselves as we always do, we gather as your people to consider who we are, uh, what you've said, and who you are, I pray that you would give us a unique new hope on this Easter morning uh, to consider the resurrection of the Son of God and all that it means for his people. And Jesus, we love you and thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, Michael. All righty. Um, so uh, a few weeks ago, I had spring break, and uh, Ezra and I, uh, my second born uh, went on a road trip to Canton, Ohio to see the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I've been wanting to do it since I was his age, and he's kind of a, a, a NFL nerd like me, and so we kind of geeked out up there on our road trip. And we had about a week together to, to hang out. And, um, you know, if you give a, a, a father a, a week alone with his son, he's uh, bound to make some questionable parenting decisions, which I was faithful to do. Uh, two of those, I trust this is a safe place, and you won't judge me too hard, and I'll give some caveats to it. Uh, one of those questionable decisions was we watched a handful of episodes of The Simpsons. Um, and uh, another one, which might be a little bit worse, uh, and just know I'd fast forward to some parts, we watched Braveheart. It's actually one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, and so let me just, as a, let me, I should say, 
Uh, the Simpsons isn't one you should just gather the family around and watch several episodes. It's got some questionable stuff in it. And, and Braveheart is, uh, has some rough scenes, and so you don't need to watch that with any young people unless you've seen it before and know when to fast forward. So anyway, that said, I want to introduce two characters. If you've seen those two shows, you know about them. Uh, one that, uh, that we think uh, is really hilarious is Ned Flanders. Uh, he's the, uh, the religious, upbeat neighbor of Homer Simpson. And, uh, and so he's just this ridiculous character uh, that's always being extra good, extra happy, which just makes him extra annoying, right? Um, and then, to, to contrast it, another character we watched was William Wallace, who is uh, fighting for a free Scotland for, uh, against the tyranny of the English. And here's, here's what I, I would notice with me or with anyone else, but you don't watch The Simpsons. And think, you know what? I should be more like Ned Flanders. He's really, he's really got it figured out. <laughs> Nobody thinks that. If anything, you get a bit like paranoid. You're just like, is this how people see me? Is this how I act? But then, on, on the other hand, with Braveheart, you know, I, I, you know, Braveheart will move me to tears just about every time. And I often feel like I want to be more like William Wallace. Um, and so it's just this, the, the, the story of what he's fighting for uh, and, and oppress Scotland against the tyranny of the English, and it's easy to just get immersed in the story. And, and here's, here's why I bring this up, is that I, I, think, I think for everyone, uh, the way you view Christianity has, has a lot to do with whether you view the Christian experience more like a Ned Flanders or more like a William Wallace. And, and let me say at the, at the, at the outset here, I, I'm not about to kind of advocate for this kind of tough guy, macho Christianity. I, I'm not doing that. But what I do want to say is that there is this kind of contrast between a view of Christianity that is mostly about being super nice and super moral, and, and then there's this, this other view of, of the Christian experience which is more related to the kingdom of God, and there's a battle to fight, um, and, and there's something to live for and something to, to die for, and it's not silly. It, it's real, and, and, it's, and it's potent, and it's powerful. And so I think when it comes to, to how you understand the Christian experience, whether you lean towards Ned Flanders or William Wallace has a lot to do with how you view the resurrection. What was it that happened with the resurrection and what does that mean? So what I want to do is I want to consider the resurrection in light of what it means and what Christ was accomplishing. So what William Wallace was doing was he had a vision for a free Scotland, and he was fighting against the English. He was trying to free them from tyranny. And in a similar way, Christians should have a view of a new world, of, of a future end-time kingdom of God that will come and has already begun to come, and that we're fighting against the strongholds of the evil one. So this new world has already begun. This end-time kingdom has come. Our king laid down his life for the new world. And while it's not yet here fully, we know that it's coming. And we know that it's coming because when the king rose from the dead, he was the first fruits of that new world that is to come. So as Christians, we should have a vision for the future world that Jesus inaugurated at his resurrection. And, and we should have a vision for that future world in a way that we impose it on our present world. 
And, and one of the ways that the Bible teaches this old world and new world concepts is through the teaching on the first and the last Adam, or the first and the second Adam, as it's sometimes referred to. So, so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the first Adam and the, the last Adam, or the second Adam, as it's sometimes called. So let me begin in going over the first Adam. So in the beginning, God created the world, everything in it. On the sixth day, he created Adam, told Adam to be fruitful and multiply, or in other words, to increase numerically and to expand geographically and to rule the world. And you should know at this point, the, the, the plan is not to try to figure out how do I get Adam and Eve out of their bodies and off this planet into heaven. The, the plan at that point is them living forever in their bodies on this planet, ruling over the earth. And, and as you know, Adam broke faith, broke faith with God by uh, taking the fruit that, he was, that was prohibited for him to take. And in that one act of, of disobedience, he infected the whole world with sin and with death. In Romans 5.12, we read this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so everyone after that is infected with death because sin entered the world. And that was God's promise in Genesis 2.17. If you eat this, you will die. And it wasn't too long after that that things got really, really bad. Things got progressively worse. In Genesis 6, 5 through 8, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Man's wickedness was so great that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it grieved God to his heart. And so the Lord decided to take them all out, with the exception, of course, of Noah and his family. And then Noah and his family survived the flood, and they get a similar command to Adam to be fruitful and, and multiply, to increase numerically, expand geographically, and to basically they're going to start the world over, Right? And soon afterwards, we hear about the call of Abraham because they're starting the world over and God's going to uh, collect a special people out of the, the nations that are beginning to arise. He calls Abraham. He's going to make a great nation out of him that's going to bless the earth. And in a sense, God's going to recreate the earth through the descendants of Abraham. And in that process, he brings about the nation of Israel. And Israel is just like Adam, unfaithful, breaking God's commands. And so they, along with the rest of the world, have been infected with Adam's sin. They will not and cannot be faithful to God. God made Adam with the potential to live forever, but since God is faithful to his word, as he said in Genesis 2.17, the penalty of sin is death. And so all that are in Adam will not be faithful, cannot be faithful. And that is the biggest problem in the world today. That has always been the biggest problem in the world today. And whatever other things might come up in, in our culture, there's always, the, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, there's always hot-button issues. They're always rooted in be, that, we, that all of humanity is in Adam. And so all kinds of evil things are going to spring up in us, in our culture, and in our days. And, you know, this past year, 
has been more controversial than any year that I remember. And it seems like there, there's an increasing of different tribes. Like there's already a few tribes, but it seems like there's more tribes, and it seems like the opinions are more polarizing and more extreme, and more and more people who used to agree are beginning to disagree because there's new things to disagree on. And, you know, it was about this time last year, you know, COVID's kind of early on, you know, and everything, we're not too far from that week, the, the, that week, the day that the world kind of shut down. And it was kind of neat for about 10 minutes, it seemed like the whole world was like, yay, boo, COVID, you know, like that's bad and we're all together. But then different theories on how to respond begin to emerge and we start to have differences of opinion that become more intense and more intense over time. Um, and then there's other kinds of problems. You know, we have the, the conservatives that think the libs are the problems and then liberals who think the Republicans and the conservatives are the, are the problem. And there are some people who are truly racist and there are some people who are hyper woke. And, and look, there's all kinds of stuff that's going to continue to emerge and, and as soon as one thing dies down, another thing's going to emerge. And, and sometimes there's this effort, well, how can we, we fix the problem? And it's always going to be this kind of uh, trimming the weeds rather than pulling them up by the root because the root issue is that we are in Adam. And as long as we can find something to disagree on, it's going to become intense, it's going to become tribal, and it's going to become polarized. So, so my point in saying all this is that the big, biggest problem in the world is not out there or them. <laughs> the problem is us, and that includes everybody who is in Adam, the sons and daughters of Adam, not the folks out there, not the folks that see this ridiculous issue in totally the wrong way. It's, all, it's infected all of us, and troubling things are consistently brewing in our hearts, anger, or, or, or what, anxiety, whatever these things are, they're consistently brewing in our hearts, and often it spills out in our words and our actions. And so we're just a mess. We're, we're just a mess. And you know what the world needs? She needs to start over, right? And that's what God intends to do. It brings me to my second point, the last Adam or the second Adam. Uh, in our text, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 to 22, we read this. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, we read this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So all who are born in Adam will die, and all who are in Christ will be made alive, meaning just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, so we will be resurrected from the dead. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. You get this idea of the first and last Adam uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, and in Romans 5, it's, it's made clear as well. Um, Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 18 through 19. Romans 5, starting at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 
So as Adam opened up a world of death to us, so the faithfulness of Jesus opened up a world to life. And Jesus, as we read here, is the first fruits of the new world that is to come. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. 22 again says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Jesus being raised from the dead is like the firstfruits of a coming harvest. And the first fruits are evidence that it's going to be a good harvest. So when the first fruits come, you know this is going to be a good harvest. This is, this is good. And so Jesus being raised from the dead is evidence that we will also be raised from the dead. And, and look, we don't just believe that, that, that we're going to be raised from the dead because it's written to us in the Bible, though that should be enough. We know it because it actually happened. It happened with Jesus and his resurrection is like a down payment that ours is going to happen. There's a little now the first fruits and a lot later. Look, I was kind of late to the game of the idea of uh, the, the resurrection of God's people. I'd heard all my life that, uh, that Jesus was resurrected. I knew that. I got that. And, and somehow I missed the idea that we as believers, our, our ultimate destination is not in heaven away from our bodies, away from this planet. But our ultimate destination as believers is in resurrected bodies on this planet. And and, and the Bible teaches Jesus not only resurrected in his body, but that he's going to return bodily. And so Jesus resurrected bodily, he's going to return bodily. And when he does, that's when we will be raised from the dead. And we will be forever in our bodies on this planet with Jesus. Now, one of the main texts on this is in 1 Thessalonians 4. So go ahead and turn there. 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're going to look at verse 14 to 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14 to 17. It says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. So when Jesus returns... The trumpet of God will sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are still alive will be caught up in the Lord, uh, in the, with the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. So the ultimate destination for God's people is not in heaven. It's not away from our bodies, away from this planet. But it's in our bodies, on this planet, with Jesus in his body. That's our ultimate destination. And so when someone becomes a Christian... They don't just become Ned Flanders. They don't just become people who are trying to be super nice and moral. They should get eyes to see the kingdom of God that has come and that is coming and that will come. They should get the idea that they've entered into a new world, a kingdom on earth that is increasing numerically and expanding geographically. And and often we talk about someone becoming a Christian. We talk about them being born again. 
And, and what does the Bible mean when it talks about being born again? Well, in John chapter 3, verse 3, we, that's where that verse is about being born again. It says this. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again is about seeing the kingdom. It's about entering into a new world that's invisible to non-believing eyes, but becomes visible to believers. They see the kingdom of God. And when the Old Testament, New Testament talk about the kingdom of God, they're speaking of this future world, a future world that has come, that has already begun. It began at the resurrection and the kingdom of, of heaven is coming to earth. And at the consummation of all things, when the, when the coming of the kingdom of God is complete, we will be resurrected in our bodies with Jesus forever on this planet. And so being born again, becoming a Christian, is about entering into the kingdom of God. It's about entering into a new world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Like that word, new creation, has meaning there. It, it, it doesn't just mean they've, they've turned over a new leaf. It's speaking of this future world. They've become a part of the new creation. They've become a part of the end-time, future kingdom of God in the present. And so this verse about becoming a new creation has implications that reach into the world to come and impose it on the present world, on the person. Uh, a Dutch theologian Herman Ritterboss said this in his commentary about 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said, The old things stand for the unredeemed world and its distress and sin. The new things for the time of salvation and the recreation that have done with Christ's resurrection. He who is in Christ, therefore, is new creation. He participates in, belongs to this new world of God. So when someone becomes a Christian... It is like fruit popping up from the new world. And when you have this happening on and on, when people are becoming Christians, this fruit from the new world is popping up, and you gather them together, you have the church. And the church is an outpost of a future world that currently resides in the present world. And that's how we should see the kingdom of God, the church, becoming a Christian. And, and we know this new world is coming because of the resurrection of Christ. That's the first fruit. It's going to happen. The resurrection is our receipt that the new world is on the way. It's coming. It has come. And one day it will come completely and finally. So we're encouraged that while in this life we're plagued with pains and sorrow, we know a new world has been inaugurated and awaits us for eternity. And one day, when we are in our billionth year in the new world, the pain and the misery of this world and this life will seem like a distant memory, even a distant memory of a dream when we were young. So we're not Ned Flanders trying to be nice and happy and pretend things aren't crazy or bad or hard. We should be more like William Wallace with dreams of what the world should be and could be, and will be. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on heaven as it is, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we really want to see heaven on earth because we believe it's coming. And in a sense, it's already begun. It's not yet what it will be, but it has most certainly begun, and we know it again because of the resurrection. 
This new world is coming into the old. So may we be encouraged by the resurrection, that the new world is coming and that it's already here. Christ and his resurrection are the first fruits of the new world. The resurrection of Christ is our receipt, and the new world and our resurrection have been bought and paid for. It's settled. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul speaks the most about the resurrection, uh, Paul ends with this encouragement and application. So he goes through all this, and he says in uh, verse 58, he says, Therefore, so bringing this all together with the resurrection, everything said, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hope in the future will make us stronger, more steadfast for today. And we need to understand deep in our bones that eternity is a long time and that our life really is short. As, as, as James said, it's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But that's not what we really think day in, day out, right? We're weighted down with how, with how big and long and heavy our life seems. If we can get in our bones that eternity really is long, and this life really is a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes, then we will indeed be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Life is hard, but our future is bright and secure and much longer than what we are experiencing in the present. And how do we know this? And I won't get into this, but how do we even know the Bible's true? How do we know it's all true? Because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is our receipt. It is not foolish to believe all that God has promised because, look, it was crazy to say that he was going to raise from the dead. Well, he did. It's enough. It is sufficient. And we should be deeply, deeply encouraged. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we long for the world to come, even if we don't realize it, even if we have been deceived into thinking that there are better things in this world, and even if in our minds we secretly long for the delay of your return, how foolish we are. We just don't get it. So would you help us to see your kingdom as it truly is, to see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, and stir in us a longing to see the full plan of God on display uh, at the consummation of all things. And would you help us to experience taste of it in this life? Would you set our hearts towards eternity and make us steadfast and immovable? In Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen.